If you'll take your Bible, Acts chapter 1 is our conversation this morning. The Bible in your pew rack, if you didn't bring one with you, please open and join us. Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 6. We'll read a, a few verses together. We have a community gathered, Jesus, of some words with his disciples before he leaves them. So when they met together, this is Jesus and his disciples, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, Jesus, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying, and tradition holds that this maybe is the room where the Last Supper was held. The text goes on to list all those who were present, 11 disciples and women, and the mother of Jesus and the brothers of Jesus, and the text tells us they constantly were in prayer together. Many older churches around the world, some of these are called stained glass churches, but some here in the States will have what's called an ascension window. Somewhere tucked into the corner of one of the walls of their church will be a scene that just depicts the ascension that we just read about based on Acts chapter 1. Usually in that picture, and if you go to the Getty Museum in Los Angeles, there are at least four of them there from all different time periods. Usually in that scene, all that can be seen sticking out of the clouds are the feet of Jesus. And indeed, circled around underneath are the disciples grabbing their mouths and expressions of wonder as they see their rabbi going up. Now, I've tried to imagine myself under that cloud where just the feet of my teacher are, are disappearing and finally gone. What would that would be like to be the disciple? The Bible says they looked up with, you know, intently gazing up. They were astonished. Well, yes. Were they wondering, you know, how did you do that, Jesus? Where are you going? What was this all about? As the feet disappear behind the cloud... One slightly irreverent commentator says, there must have been at least one of those disciples who after a while said, if Jesus could do this all along, why did we walk through Galilee? What would that be like to see the feet of your teacher disappear up into the sky? At the point of departure, Jesus has been with them, the Bible tells us, for about 40 days. It's a biblical time of testing and proving. He's been teaching them and he tells them, don't leave. I want you to go back to Jerusalem when I'm gone. Gospel of Luke records it. Acts referred to it here. In Luke 24, Jesus says it this way to his disciples. You are witnesses of these things. He's referring to his death and resurrection and being with the disciples again. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. They're waiting for power to become witnesses. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. And the, the story of the book of Acts goes on to say the power did come. 
and great things did happen after they spent their time in prayer. The Bible says that they elected someone to replace Judas. And it's a leadership plan that unfolds the rest of Acts chapter 1. But if you move on in Acts chapter 2, the Feast of Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit, what we see is that there is a segue between the ministry of Jesus now and the ministry of the disciples. What Jesus did, the disciples will now do. So it is, they healed people and they raised the dead and they died forgiving the people who killed them, if you can imagine. Acts records all of these things and it appears that the disciples never really take credit for the wonders that they do. Acts 1 is another way at getting at the Great Commission that Ken spoke about last week, the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Acts 1 is the Great Commission stated in another way. We're talking about it today because, as Ken told those of you who were here last week, it's a new conversation now for the next seven weeks, connected to our previous just walk across the room, but another form of the conversation. Two years ago, we had a sermon series called A Church Like That, and we identified healthy components of a church. Some of you remember that series. We one of the components we talked about is the metaphor that we adopt as a community. And we cited with Dr. Rick Rice in his work, Believing, Behaving, Belonging, that family would be our functioning metaphor and for good biblical reasons. And it's just that part of the conversation we want to stay with for these seven weeks as we do family again. Family 2.0, we're calling it. Just wondering how seriously we want to take the metaphor of family. We say we're family. We tell people the Cala Mesa Church is known for its great what? Family atmosphere. But do do we mean that? Are we willing to do the hard work of what it takes to be a biblically functioning, relevant family in today's world? Or is it only the rhetoric of family? We say it and we posture it and and we want it and we want others to believe that about us. But are, are we really that? Ken said it nicely last week in his sermon when he said, there is a difference between a house and a home. So we want it to be a home. Why are we starting with Acts chapter 1? The sermon title today, you see, Why Others? Well, in Acts, it's fairly clear that the newest family that forms what Jesus leaves his work to, this disciple family of disciples, their one primary task is to witness to tell the good story of God. And in this text, it says to all ends of the earth, the primary function of the church. And it sort of startled me this time around, reading Acts 1 again, how significant and foundational this task is. And it's intriguing that in the Gospels, except for the Gospel of John, Jesus doesn't really spend much time telling the disciples to take care of each other. But they are charged with this task of taking the good news of God to the world, having an other's focus. So it's the question we're asking this morning. As a family here at Calamesa on 4th and Myrtle, would just us, how are we doing with this 2,000-year-old charge to be my witnesses? Do you see your church here unleashed in the world? Do you see powerful acts happening 
When we were at our church retreat, some of you there on Friday night heard Dr. Handysides from the General Conference. He concluded his talk, if you were there, was speaking about the, the work of the church. He said, let me guess, if the Calamesa Church closed her doors, the people from the community would come out and say, no, not the Calamesa Church. We can't lose her in our community. She's so important to us. And he chided us a little bit. Do you remember? It wasn't that funny, but we did smile a little bit. Now, so several of us sitting there went, this is an interesting point. If we closed our church doors, what, what would the community say? How are we doing with the 2,000-year-old question? Do you see mighty acts in the world? Do you feel a little more paralysis or a little stall? Do you feel that maybe there is more you'd like to see unleashed. If you go back to verse 11a in Acts chapter 1, just the first part there, when the messengers of these angelic beings came down to talk to the disciples gathered, the question was, men of Galilee, people of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Why do you stand gazing upwards? Why are you fixed in that position is the question. And it's a poetic way of saying, why are you stalling God's agenda? Why are you pausing now? Why aren't you moving? Why don't you get back down off the Mount of Olives and get on with your work? Why are you paralyzed? What's the stalling about? I don't know if you can relate to that, the way you think of your church in today's world, or personally how you feel about your part in representing God. Watch this video clip and see if you can relate to anything you see here. Whoa, that's not good. Oh, I don't need this. I'm already late. Somebody will come. Anybody out there? Do you have a phone? No. Sorry. Somebody! Hello! There are two people stuck on an escalator and we need help. Now, would somebody please do something? I don't believe this. You gotta be kidding me. <laughs> I'm gonna cry. <laughs> well, there's not enough left to do. Is it? it is one of the casualties of our urgent lives and our urgent lifestyle that we tend to absorb the world's position and we begin to feel that we are entitled and that we are owed and that someone should take care of things. It is one of the casualties, I think, maybe not even intentionally, just a casualty of the way we live our world that we begin to think we're the deserving ones and that people should cater to us and that even inside the church we ought to be catered to. We should get what we want. Somebody should come and fix the escalator. It's acceptable in our world. Actually, it's even expected, isn't it? Sort of this entitlement perspective and moving around the world that way. 
I saw it at 5 o'clock during the rush hour dinner crowd over on hospitality last night. We went to have an early supper. There is not a parking space for two blocks around, but here is somebody in a car parked right on top of the line occupying two stalls. You see that? That bugs you too, doesn't it? Of course, the statement is, this is such an important car that it deserves two stalls. It wasn't that great of a car, to be honest. It wasn't like the little BMW that sometimes parks outside my office door that I covet. So we take two car car slots because we can. Like the teenage boy running through our neighborhood this weekend, ringing all the doorbells and then just running because he can. And we all run out into our front yards looking around and you look up the street and all the other neighbors are looking too. Because he can. It's like the way people tailgate on the Interstate 10 freeway with these very uncreative hand gestures. They're just getting old. There is more tailgating on the 10 than the 91. I'm here to witness. And we do it because we can. Or as the Wall Street Journal reported this week, top executives in, in America's largest corporations receiving these huge compensation packages, $12 million, for example, four times higher than the second in command. Now, if you're being offered $12 million to lead a company, do you stop and say, well, let me see what the you know, equitable thing would be to do? How's the disparity here? among top executives. Is it equal? No, you take the $12 million, right? Because that's the way our world operates. I deserve it. I get it. I can have it. Winner takes all mentality. And it creeps into the church. I watched Brent Hildebrand in the hospital this week, and he gave me permission to share with you. Some of you know Brent is anesthesiologist at Redlands Community Hospital, and he was doing a case on Tuesday, I believe, when he began, he, he thought he went to church to work with a little indigestion or something, a little heartburn. But as the day went on, it grew worse. And here he is working a case, realizing he's not doing so well, and maybe he needs to see a doctor. He, he finishes the case, and he sits down. And what does he do but pick up his stethoscope and listen to his own heart? And he listened carefully. He said, you know, it's been a while since I've been in medical school. I don't do cardiology, but I listened and I thought, now remember Brent leads with Mike and Arliss Filman our cardiac prevention program. So Brent knows he's heart attack proof. He knew it was not a heart attack. Kept telling the doctors, this is not a heart attack, but he's listening to his heart. And he said something like, it sounds like I've burst my papillary muscle and it's been torn away and there's some mitral regurge going on. Something like that. How nice to pick up your own stethoscope and listen to your own heart. Called for the cardiologist on call. They had him worked up in an hour. It was a viral infection. He's okay. He was in church this morning. Grateful. Now, can you imagine? There's my visual picture for the week. Could you imagine Dr. Hildebrand with his stethoscope on, moving around the halls of Redlands Community Hospital with it placed on his own chest? Take a few steps. Let me see how I'm doing. You know, move to the cafeteria for lunch. How am I doing? Does that make any sense that he would wear his stethoscope for himself? It's a good visual. Entitlement. Leans towards narcissism. Thinking we deserve all that. That we should have that power. T.S. Eliot says this. 
Half of the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They don't mean to do harm, but the harm does not interest them, or they do not see it. They justify it because they're absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. Becoming entitled people in the church, it it never ends well spiritually. Entitlement communities in the Bible, they never prosper either. Imagine Jesus leaving earth with the disciples here and the feet have gone up in the cloud and they've gone back to the room and they've prayed for the Holy Spirit and then they move out with power and they start establishing their churches. Now can you imagine the disciples establishing churches where they they decide they should develop top-notch program for all their children and youth? That would be their primary focus. Imagine churches where they've, they grow large, sort of like ours, and they think, well, we should have two services. We'll do one sort of the traditional way where we'll read the scroll in a somber voice by an official trained reader. And, but by the second service, we'll, we'll lean a little more contemporary. We'll do a little communal chanting and a little liturgical dancing. Can you imagine the disciples starting churches for those reasons? Can you imagine churches insisting that they read only the Babylonian scrolls, nothing written since the Babylonian exile, and then that they would spend their time and their hours on Sabbath arguing about the interpretation, and that would be what consumes the community? Could you imagine churches where they'd measure the dress code and, and the people sit in certain places and families saying, hey, this place is too strict for me, I'll just check out and do my own thing at home. Does that make any sense at all to the disciples who have been charged with being witnesses in the world? It's one of the ways we stand and gaze upward, this poetic way of saying we hold up God's agenda. One of the ways we do that is when we lose our other's focus. And it happens subtly in our community. The church necessarily has its gaze fixed out, not in. And we probably need to remind ourselves often. If I had to do this over again, even with my own family at home, I think I would work on developing a mission statement with my spouse and post it over the door that even helped my children understand more carefully, you are in this world for other people, not for yourself. So if you were to church shop, or if I were to church shop, decided I needed to, you know, find another church, I don't have any intentions, but if you needed to church shop, what you ought to do, if you'd like a biblically functioning church, if you'd like an authentically Jesus-led movement, you should go to a community and ask them and make a judgment. Is their gaze fixed out? And can I tell? Look at what they do and the programs that they create and as a response to God and ask, ask, do you, I see an Acts 1 mission in all of this. Are others a driving force for how this community functions? Now this is not to the exclusion of taking care of each other. And these ideas sit together somewhat. In the sermon series in a few weeks, we will talk about uh, other things like, you know, why it's important the church plays together why we have to study together and keep learning together, why we choose to medicate, a wonderful topic Art Earl will help us with, why we sit in the pews medicating with all sorts of things in in the world and we're silent about it, why some of us decide to leave this community and why some of us 
have decided to stay. So while there are topics interwoven here about taking care of ourselves, I think it's interesting that probably in, in the way we take care of ourselves, it enables us to do the main task of the church, which is to witness in the world. For we see the disciples share things together and they have their meals and their prayer together. It is not necessarily and only for the sake of taking care of each other. It's to remain strong as a group so they can witness to the world. It's an internal choice with an external motive. Foundationally different if we want to be a biblically functioning church. The question is not how do we make our church attractive to other Christ followers. How do we make this community attractive to people who live far from God? How would we make this a viable option for people who don't know the good God you know? who haven't had the taste of a good God that, that Bailey has had. That is what an outward-focused church asks. It's a frightening perspective, as we've talk, talked about often here, because it means I won't be asking what I can get from this church. I will be asking what others can get, what I can give. When the gaze seems stalled upwards... Acts chapter 2 has a formula. I think it is a, a formula that works in any age in which the church finds herself. When they gather in the upper room, they gather, first of all, to wait. It's very clear. You go home and read this afternoon. They wait. They pause. They linger. And that's significant if we find ourselves in a stall to wait. And we're reminded that we don't know the times and the periods, but we know the God who stands behind these promises. So we wait on that God. The present and the future of our family here falls under the promises of a father we know. Waiting is important. When, when we wait, what we're waiting for is the promise of this Holy Spirit power. The second thing you see in Acts chapter 2, which just reminds us we don't run on our own fuel around here. And maybe that's another reason churches get stalled because we're running on our own fuel instead of running on Holy Spirit fuel. And when that power is finally given third, it is solely for the purpose of being witnesses in the world, in, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth, if we think we're going to receive Holy Spirit power for any other reason, we better wait a little longer. It is interesting, if you follow Acts 2 all the way through, that when the church is turned loose in the world, amazing things happen. This is an interesting conversation right now in Adventist Christianity. Some of you are aware that there's a small movement starting out of Central California pushing for this time of prayer, the end of June in 10 days. There into July, where the thought is that if all Adventist Christians would be praying at the same time, and in fact, if you log on to their website, you'll see the, promotion, the promotional material, what if 16 million Adventist Christians all prayed at the same time for the same thing? It is interesting to me. Now, you know I always speak honestly, so I'm just going to tell you. It's interesting to me. To the degree that we think if 16 million of us prayed, we could persuade God to do something God can do anytime God wants to. We have to be careful there. 
It's interesting to me to the degree that we pray because we think the latter rain will somehow usher in the last days and we can say goodbye to this little experiment called earth. Because if I'm reading Acts 2 carefully, the latter rain prayer is always personal. It is always, Lord, what do you want to do in me? Not out there. What could you do in me? Which, if I'm reading correctly, what God's asking the disciples to do in Acts is care about the world. So I suggest this morning that an outward gaze and a commitment to that is a latter rain prayer. It is a frightening prayer. And it's powerful. To be others-focused. We watch it in our veterans this weekend. And there are some of you sitting here this morning. I don't know how one signs the papers and commits their lives to the unknown for the sake of others in this country. That's an others perspective. I saw it on campus yesterday at the university, the first of weeks now of graduation ceremonies, as we know. I'm just a softie for graduations. Although they do get old after a couple of weeks, I admit, especially if you're the ones putting on the regalia. But yesterday, the first ceremony on campus with the hooding of the Ph.D. candidates was especially touching to me. I do not know if this was orchestrated or if it was accidental, and I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt that it was profoundly divine. For when the, the candidates for their doctoral degrees from the sciences uh, received their hoods, they had a kneeling bench and the candidates knelt down, which makes it a lot easier to put a hood over the head, by the way. But they're kneeling on a bench receiving their hood after they've just heard a short commencement address that reminded them, you are joining the ranks of 1% of the population. If you go nationwide and any kind of a doctoral degree in our country, you are in that 1% elite. And then they moved down to the masters. And in America, we could do this. And if you thought of this globally, it matters if you even have a high school education. Globally, you are in the elite. And, and the question posed was, now what will you do with that? Are you special? Or is there another option? And these candidates kneeled on a kneeling bench, not faced in towards their professors who were hooding them, but faced straight out into the community. How beautiful that the elite would face out. I saw it again two months ago when the class of 2007 for the School of Medicine, graduating also this weekend, they presented their class gift to the university. I was at an event where they stood up and said, this is what we are giving the school. And one of the gifts was to remodel a pediatric clinic that serves the under-resourced of the community. It was a beautiful gift. Themselves, they painted and remodeled. But the second portion of their gift was profound to me also. They decided, well before they've received their diplomas, before they've landed jobs anywhere that pay them a handsome salary, they decided collectively as a class that they wanted to have this outward gaze. And the gift they gave the university was to commit ahead of time, hours of service to the community. Wherever they find themselves, they each wrote down what they think they'll be doing and where they think they'll be going. And inside of that overall objective is buried a commitment 
to serve the world free of charge. Isn't that beautiful? That is what an outward gaze looks like. That's an outward, others-focused community. How are we doing? The text says, why are you looking up? Implies, look out. Amen.